Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, evidence that we're living not in a golden age, but in a moulding age after a Byline Times investigation reveals that thousands of social housing tenants are living in homes where damp has turned into fungus. This can be lethal. The death of toddler Awab Ishak in 2020 came about as the result of severe respiratory conditions caused by prolonged exposure to mould at his home in Rochdale. So how many more people are at risk? Well, we're going to hear from Michelle, a social housing tenant who believes her lung collapsed as a result of mould in her flat, and Sean Norris, who has reported on this for the Byline Times. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There's no large corporation behind us. We're not pushing anybody's agenda. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption, and holding the powerful to account. So please think about taking out a subscription if you can. To get more details over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com for details on how to subscribe. Let's welcome then Michelle. Uh, Michelle, welcome to the Byline Times podcast. And just give us a, an outline of the, the issues that you've had with mould in your flat. Yeah, so I've had significant mold black mold in my wet room and my kitchen but also in the bedrooms that myself and my son live in and in the living room as well which has affected my furniture i've had to get rid of soft furnishings so it's been quite problematic and how long has this been going on for four years and it pretty much started from when you moved into the flat didn't it yeah, literally about three weeks after I moved in. So I moved in and the flat was all beautifully painted white, looked lovely. And within about three weeks, I noticed black mould appearing in all the rooms, really. But it's worst in the wet room and the kitchen. And you're a council tenant? That's right, yeah. Tell yeah. me about your dealings with the council then. Yeah, so it's Bristol City Council. So I reported it when it started to happen, so four years ago approximately and they fitted some new extractor fans because the extractor fans were broken when I moved in but that didn't really fix the problem and it's just got worse and worse and worse. So here we are four years on and I mentioned the death of the toddler in Rochdale. You think that breathing in these spores, breathing in this mould has contributed to your ill health? Yeah, that's right. So sort of I'd say after a few months of living here, once we'd got through the summer and the house became more full of condensation because the fans weren't working, I started getting bronchitis and my severe asthma was triggered. I had several asthma attacks over the past few years, very big asthma attacks. And then last November, October, November last year, I was diagnosed with a collapsed lung which I believe and my GP believes is due to living in the mouldy conditions. So where are you at now? What's the situation at the moment? So things are a bit better because I they had to rip out my wet room, which was absolutely sodden. It had stud walls and the floor and the walls were all collapsing because it was so wet and damp and mouldy. They ripped all that out, put a new wet room in. So that's a lot better. But I've still got 
quite significant mould in the kitchen, even though there's a new extractor fan, which was put in several months ago. Just not getting better, really. There's a problem with the way that the building is in terms of ventilation. There's just not enough ventilation. And have your neighbours got similar problems? Yeah, the woman that lives above me, so it's a house conversion, she's got the same. She had to have all of her flat treated by a company that treats it for mould. And my neighbour opposite as well, he had the same problem. And Sean, you've been investigating this for byline times. I know that ITV News in the shape of Dan Hewitt did some excellent work on this as well in 2022. But what have you found for Byland Times? So after the coroner's report on the horrible death of the little boy, Awad Ishak, I was interested in finding out what was the scale of mould problems in social housing across England and Wales. So what I did was I sent out freedom of information requests to all of the councils that held their own council housing stock to see how many complaints about damp and mould they'd received since July 2017. I chose July 2017 because that was obviously when the Grenfell disaster happened and there was a lot of promises made about how social housing was going to be reformed and how change was going to happen. And yet we're still seeing these kind of crises in council housing and the provision for council tenants. So it took a few months to get all the FOI responses back. And what I found was that there had been at least 27,566 complaints from council tenants about mould and damp And I also asked how many of those households contained children under 18. And although not all of the councils were able to provide that data, the ones that did said that there were 1,491 complaints from households with children. And of course, what we know is that this is the tip of the iceberg because many councils no longer have their own council housing stock. They're run by housing associations instead. And housing associations do not have to comply with the Freedom of Information Act. They're exempt from it because they're not a kind of government body. So there were dozens and dozens of boroughs where I didn't get data from because I simply couldn't because the council doesn't hold the data. Other councils refused to respond to the request because they said they didn't have the data and some just didn't respond at all, including the council where Michelle lives. But I think even this snapshot shows that there's a real problem. There's a real issue with mould and damp across council housing. And that it's kind of something that we really need to be getting a grip on. You know, it shouldn't take the death of a child for people to take this issue seriously and to really understand the ill health effects. There's sort of emotional ill health effects. You know, people don't want to live in damp and mouldy housing. It's not a happy place to be. It doesn't make you feel good about your home. You know, we need to be taking much firmer action on this and actually thinking about council housing as a public good than people who live in council housing being entitled to safe, sanitary, clean homes where they can you know, live with their families and flourish. The figures that you've obtained, as you say, were really only from a minority of councils. So we've got 27,000 complaints from council tenants about mould and damp since 2017. But that figure relates only to 89 local authorities in England. So, as you say, it's the tip of the iceberg. There must be many, many, many thousands more complaints. You know, that's difficult to extrapolate an exact figure, but this is just an indicator. Yes, absolutely. I mean, gosh, everyone knows that my maths is not going to be able to extrapolate a figure based on those complaints and the proportion of councils we heard back from. 
But I think it also speaks to an issue about transparency. You know, we know that a lot of council tenants or social housing tenants are living in housing associations, which, as I say, are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. So they don't have to respond to these requests. There's no legal requirement for them to do so. But it makes it very difficult then to understand the quality of the housing being provided by these associations, what issues may exist within the associations and what issues may exist with social landlords. For example, in Rochdale, where Awabishak was living and, and where he, he sadly died, that was run by a housing association. And so we we you know we don't know how many other mould complaints would have been made to that housing association because Freedom of Information Act doesn't apply to them. So I think that should be as well as a push to deal and grapple with this issue and actually take action and ensure that all social housing and all council housing is fit to live in and you know free from mould and damp in as much as they possibly can be. We also need to be pushing for more transparency in terms of how we look at social housing and the rights of tenants and what is actually going on in these organisations and what is going on for tenants who are living in properties run by these social landlords. And Michelle, just picking up on Sean's point about how it makes you feel about mm. your home. Yeah, I mean, since the damp and mould has gone out of my wet room in particular, because that was absolutely awful. And that's I've the felt... room where you shower, presumably. Yes, that's right. Since that's been repaired and made good, my feelings have lifted. You know, I feel a bit better about being in this property. Prior to that, I was really low. It just makes you feel grimy, if I can use that word. It's deeply, deeply unpleasant and embarrassing as well. You know, when you've got visitors coming round and they use your it was so bad that there was a slug infestation as well. So always slugs crawling across the floor or up the walls. Just absolutely vile is all I can say. Mm. And you've got a, a teenage lad as well. I wonder how he feels about it, if he said anything about it to you. Yeah, he was delighted when they fixed the wet room and he's really pleased that from what we can make out, the council are trying now to make good the issues with the property. But it took going to the press, people such as yourselves, for them to take action. Sean, some local authorities are bigger than others, so we're not exactly comparing apples with apples here when we talk about local authorities. In England alone, there are 333 different kinds of local council, some very big cities, some relatively small rural districts. But it was notable that some local authority areas did have significant numbers of mould and damp complaints. Yes. So, I mean, as you say, you've got to think about the size of the local authority, the amount of data that they were able to give back. So some local authorities only gave data for the last six months, while others gave us data for the whole five years. So, you know, it's not comparing like with like, but we did find that of the data we collected, that 10 of the responding councils had received more than a thousand complaints about mould and damp. And Sheffield City Council had the highest rate, like over 5,000 complaints. But as I say, you know, Sheffield City Council is a big local authority and it's got a lot of social housing stock, whereas one of the smaller kind of rural borough councils has a much smaller housing stock. And so they'll only get like maybe even single figure complaints. But I think it is, you know, worth looking at those big borough councils because that is where a lot of people are living. And, you know, and it's it speaks again to these systemic issues about a lack of care, a lack of respect for council housing and properties. 
And the other thing that I think it's really important to mention is that obviously we've looked at councils and council housing because that's where we can get freedom of information data from. But the English Housing Survey found that private tenants, like so people who rent privately, have an even bigger issue with mould and damp. And that 11% of private renters are struggling with mould and damp in their accommodation. And we know that there are problems with council tenancies. We know that there is issues in getting help, as Michelle outlines. It takes a long time. You feel like you're not listened to, you're not being respected, your complaints are not being heard. And then, of course, with private landlords and private housing, there's even fewer regulatory frameworks to get you support and you're even you're very precarious often in private rented accommodation so this is a big issue across the country and you know the smallest number of people who experience problems with mold and damp are those who are own their own properties michelle did you have any kind of regular inspection from the local council to identify the problem of damp and mold no no not at all so when I moved in, like I say, about three weeks after I reported it, I think they sent someone round to check the fans. Several weeks later, they then changed the fans several weeks after that. And then no one even came to check to see if the fans were working properly, which they weren't. And therein lies the issue is that whenever works are done, whether it's to treat mould or change fans or whatever it is, no one ever comes to check the work. And I think that's quite significant. So the council was entirely reliant on you flagging this issue rather yeah. than proactively as a landlord trying to identify problems yeah. that you might have yeah. in the property. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. And that's an issue, isn't it, Sean? I remember a few years ago, I think it was under Tony Blair's government, there was something called the decent home standard. I grew up in a council house and I remember my mum and dad were delighted because they had UPVC double glazing fitted as was every home on the estate that was owned by the local authority. But generally, councils don't go out and inspect properties. I can never remember an inspection in my time growing up from the landlord. And as a private landlord, you might actually get a check from time to time just checking that the properties are okay, that it's being well looked after, there doesn't seem to be any demand placed upon local authorities to carry out that kind of check. Not to be nosy, but to just to make sure that the the home is habitable. So that puts the onus then on the on the tenants to identify the issues. Absolutely. And this is something that um, ACORN, which is a housing union, raised with us when we spoke to them about this issue. They explained, you know, said that we don't rely on children to complain before inspections are carried out to make sure schools are safe. You know, we don't rely on diners to to complain before inspections on restaurants take place. And yet with housing, everything is put on the tenant to constantly be raising the alarm, raising the alarm, raising the alarm. And I think this is problematic in, in two ways. I mean, first of all, you don't want people just turning up at your house all the time. It has to be done with consent and with a conversation. But you do need to have proactive landlords to ensure that people are getting the support they need to live in a, a safe and healthy home. But I also think there's an intersectional issue here as well. Like if English isn't your first language, if you're from a marginalised community, you know, if you don't have a lot of confidence in dealing with the sort of authorities, then that can be a real barrier in raising a complaint. You might feel that you're at risk of 
having your migrant status used against you. You might feel that you are going to get into trouble if you complain. And one of the things that was really raised after the coroner's report into Awab Ishak's death is that racism really played a part in what was going on in that situation, that they felt as as asylum-seeking people or refugees that they weren't taken seriously and they weren't listened to. And so I think, you know, I mean, we all know if you want to complain about something, sometimes you've got to kind of work up a bit of courage to call that restaurant and say, actually, you've given me food poisoning making that demands on tenants who for all sorts of reasons might not feel comfortable picking up the phone and making that complaint is really problematic. And so we need to see it in terms of both the responsibility of social housing landlords to be proactive, but also for them to consider the barriers to complaining that might mean issues don't get sorted out. And Sean, we should caveat what I'm about to say next by recognising that the councils who did respond may not be the worst The vast majority of councils didn't reply to you, but the most complained about council was Sheffield. They had 5,954 complaints. There were 1,739 complaints by council tenants in York, 361 of those from households where children live. The City of Westminster in London received 2,524 complaints. And Bolsover, relatively small local authority, I would have thought, in Derbyshire, 2,140 complaints about damp and mould. What kind of political reaction have your findings generated? So I did speak to Lisa Namdi, who's the Shadow Leveling Up Secretary for Labour, about the data that we collected, and which she described as shocking and was very insistent that no one should be living in damp and mouldy home, particularly in this day and age. And councils are devolved, so they are in charge of their own housing stock and whether to have it run by a housing association or by the council itself. But I think it sort of speaks as well to the need for a national conversation about the right to housing and the right to safe and comfortable housing where you can really build a home. I think there's been a real shift in our perspective on social housing over the past 50, 70 years from the sort of post-war boom of building social housing to where we are now. You know, it should be something that we're proud of, that we are seeking to create, that we are seeking to expand so that everybody has a home of their own and a place to call home for themselves and their family. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with this kind of issues around mould, issues around infestations, other problems with housing is that there's been this kind of running down of council housing. And the most desperate outcome of that was, of course, the fire at Grenfell. You know, this is what happens when we don't value social housing, when we don't see it as something to take pride in and something to invest in. We're going to see horrific deaths like this of this little boy, the the horror of Grenfell, of people like Michelle getting sick because they're living in a mouldy home. So it really speaks to a much bigger systemic issue about how we think about housing in this country. And as a postscript, Michelle, you lived in London prior to moving to Bristol and you had similar issues there. I certainly did. Yeah, I was in a council tenancy for about eight years in Westminster. And, uh, you know, obviously I still had asthma then. I was born with it. And a surveyor came round to look at the property it was quite a small flat and basically said that we were breathing too much you know these are the sort of comments that you get from people that come to inspect the issues these kind of throwaway comments and that issue was never really resolved it's been an ongoing problem for myself and for thousands and thousands and thousands of people this is a huge issue 
the government does have a decent homes guidance document at gov.uk. Are you aware of that? Have you ever compared your living accommodation with the standards set out within the decent homes guidance? No, I wasn't aware of that, but I've always felt very strongly that there should be. So if there is and it's not being implemented, which it seems it's not, then there's something very lacking. Good to speak to Michelle. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your story with us. Thank you as well to Sean Norris. And you can read Sean's full report over on our website at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget, if you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, our monthly newspaper, then you're helping to support Sean's great work on the website and this podcast as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You'll get more details, as I say, on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.